0: This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by John Syracusa, the founder of Hypercritical. I'm the co-host, Dan Benjamin. Today is November 18th, 2011. This is episode number 43. I want to say thanks to our two sponsors, Shopify.com. And squarespace.com. We want to say thanks to reinvigorate.net for uh, providing sponsorship for the bandwidth for this show. Real-time web stats and heat maps. Promo code five by five will give you ten percent off life of your account. Reinvigorate.net. Use those guys. Love them. John Syracuse, welcome back. How are you ready? I feel ready. I think I'm ready. We'll see. I don't know. Maybe not. No, I, I've got to. I've got to tell you. Got to tell you. Last week's uh, last week's show. I have received so much oddly positive feedback about this show. Why? Why? Why is it odd? Be, because usually I, there's about an equal amount of criticism to compliments, and usually they're by the same people. But I, I will. I will tell you this. I'm going to throw a number. Out at you okay to, I'm ready to date hypercritical episode number 42 Hold on, let me pull this out hypercritical number 42 if I can uh, if I can spell it right if I can do the, the correct search for it has I mean do you want to do you want to guess at this what am I guessing at? The number of downloads.
1: Oh, I don't know. I have no idea.
0: You want to take it guess? I'll save it. I'll save it for later. All right. I mean, yeah. I'm,
1: you don't tell me download numbers routinely, so I have no idea what, a, what average is or whatever. All right. So, yeah. Uh, the, I think the reaction to the last show was overwhelmingly positive. And I guess that is surprising because you're right. Most of the shows, it's like there. Are, there's a strong contingent of people who disagree. I think... I, I don't know what it was with this one, but the the, the thing I see, saw on this show was that most of the feedback that I got, or there was a lot of feedback, and most of it didn't come through the five by five feedback form. Normally, it's like after each show, the majority of the feedback I get comes through that form. This time, the stuff that came through that form was still positive, but I got lots of like lots of email to my Ars Technica email address, yeah. lots of stuff on Twitter that was just replying to me. You were included in all of those too. So didn't you didn't just see like a lot more Twitter feedback this time than a before. Lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, so it was uh, very positive. Uh, um, this show, this is going to be still about the jobs bio for people who are wondering. Uh, and all the follow-up is going to be about the previous show on the jobs bio. It's hard not to make this show 100% just a meta show about the feedback about the previous show. I will try to avoid that and just make it 50% uh, about that. <laughs> uh, so let's go because I want to oh, I, wanna, I wanna, uh, run out of time. So the people who gave positive feedback, they were, uh, they were, I'm kind of lumping them into a couple categories. First, there were the people who, you know, the usual people you expect the people who agree with you. They they dislike the book for the same reasons that I did. They're like, you like to hear someone echo your opinion out to a larger audience. So that was a big chunk of the people with positive feedback. Like, yeah, that's just what I was thinking right on. Right. Uh, then there was people who read the book and were not blown away by it, uh, but couldn't put their finger on what the problem was and listening to the show sort of crystallized their dissatisfaction or highlighted one aspect of their dissatisfaction. Then there was a pretty large group of people who just like hearing me complain about stuff. Uh, which, which makes sense because you figure if you're going to be a long time listener of my podcast, you, you would, you know, you would be the type of person who might like hearing me complain about stuff. And they, uh, I think they'd be just as happy if I complained about toasters or whatever. Uh, they were. They thought it was fun because I was worked up about it.
0: Right, or on fire was the term that I heard uh, a lot. Syracuse, was on fire on that last episode. And you're right, I think there are a handful of people who just, very simply, they just enjoyed hearing you express your strong emotion about the topic. Right. It was that simple. They didn't, they didn't care what, what the topic was. It just ha- so happened that they, they loved to hear you around them. And I'm certainly in that camp.
1: Yeah, and I, and I like hearing other people on other podcasts do that, so I understand that sentiment. Um, and then finally, uh, mixed throughout this group were people—this is all the positive people, by the way— were the people who had their own complaints. They would be like, yeah, everything you said, and—and and then they would list all the things that they didn't like about the book. Uh, in particular, a lot of people wanted to show the little uh, niggly things that they happened to notice that I didn't mention in the show. I I'd, I'd made a few notes of a couple of them. I'm sorry I didn't remember the people's names, but uh, it was a lot of feedback. Uh, one, one person said, uh, did you notice that they that they said that the Black Forest was in Bavaria when it's not actually in Bavaria? I didn't know this because I don't know much about uh, German geography. Uh, a couple people complained that in the audiobook version, which I'd never listened to, that the audiobook person pronounces Mac OS X as Mac OS X. But then I got one person who complained <laughs> that the audiobook said Mac OS X instead of Mac OS X. So I don't, I don't know what the audiobook actually <laughs> says. But, but, you know... One person complained that they uh, misspelled the word Aikido, they forgot an I in there, which seems strange because he figured, uh, I guess that's not a spell check, wouldn't catch it up, but you think a book editor would spell check. But, you know, so a lot of people wanted to share their own opinion. So that's pretty much how the the positive uh, feedback broke down. Um, but there was negative feedback. There was a large volume of feedback. Period. So just because it was overwhelmingly positive, there was still more negative feedback than usual in terms and raw numbers. You know, so there was like a hundred tweets and emails. Uh, you know, there was like ten negative ones, but ten is n- more than we normally get. Uh, the, the The main thing I saw in the negative feedback is it, it made me wonder if it's even possible to talk about something you don't like. in in a podcast format or written down or whatever, and then later give a big long list of nitpicks without anyone who listens to it who disagrees with you deciding that what you're saying is because of the nitpicks, that's why, you know, that's the reason this thing stinks. It's because Uh, of all these nitpicky things, right? And I tried so hard to separate it in the past show. Like, I did the first part of, you know, here's why I think uh, there was a problem with the book, there was a wasted opportunity, blah, blah. And then I said, okay, and now here's a bunch of nitpicky stuff. Trying to separate them so that people don't think that these nitpicky things are the main primary reason why this book is bad. So lots of people were arguing against a position I didn't take, you know, Oh, you don't little errors like that. Don't make a book bad. You're crazy. Uh, You know, and it's it's just very difficult to, I mean, I don't think I could have been more clear and maybe maybe I could have been more clear, but like, I, I really tried to hammer home, you know, here is why I think the book is not successful as it should have been. And then also here's these nitpick things. Right. Um, and, so maybe it's just like no matter what I said, once I started doing that list, uh, people either are just not interested in the first things that I had to say or just bounced off them. And then once they got to the nitpicky stuff, since they disagree with me, like these are people who like the book or disagree with my opinion of it, they're going to latch on to that because it's easy to uh, t- to attack, right? Or And some people just don't like nitpicking. Like, you know, they don't, they don't like people picking at little things. And I have to wonder... If you don't like nitpicking, why are you listening to a show called Hypercritical? I mean, Maybe it's new listeners. Uh, to be fair, a lot this got spread around a lot. So a lot of the people listening may have been listening for the first time. They didn't really know what they're in for. So it's not, you know, they, they have a valid opinion. If you don't like listening to someone complain, this is not the podcast for you. I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, to, to recap for the people who are listening now, just to emphasize once again, the nitpicks are not the reason that, that they're not the primary reason that I found fault with this book. It was mostly that this was sort of the singular opportunity for a complete scholarly biography of a really important man. And I feel like that opportunity was squandered by the author because what he wrote was kind of a shallow human interest summary of his life with not a lot of original investigation and research. Um, and, and the examples I gave that in all the last show, how kind of like the first part was better because he had more research to pull from and he didn't seem to be very curious about lots of topics and didn't, didn't go through them. And there's nothing particularly wrong with a sort of you know, shallow human interest summary, like magazine style. Uh, you know, popular biography. There's definitely a place for those, and some people like those. And they said, "This is exactly what I wanted," and I got what I wanted. My complaint is that, you know, if you want to write one of those, don't be the one guy who has access to Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs was so private and didn't allow people in. This was this is a unique singular opportunity that was squandered. That is the, the the primary reason that I have complaints about the book. Now, later on in this. Very podcast. I'm going to talk more about those nitpicky things. Don't forget this part people that I said this is the reason this is the primary reason why I think the book was not successful. I will still talk about the nitpicks and I think they were they did have some importance they were just not the primary importance. They're not even if you eliminated all of them, I don't think that I would be happy with the book. They're just a symptom of a
0: larger problem. So Now let me let me clear something up. Yeah. Isn't the real reason that you are so upset about this book? isn't the real reason that you are simply bitter that you were not selected to write it.
1: Yeah, that's something that uh, a lot of people, if they hear someone com- complain about stuff, uh, it's kind of, it kind of gets back to the Steve Jobs uh, attack on that guy, or, or sometimes you can see this in movie critics too, where they say, uh, what have you done that's so great? Or, uh where's your movie you you're, you're criticizing this movie well let me see the better movie that you've made the idea that you can't criticize something without having the ability to do it better right and that the uh, flip side of that is that when you hear someone criticize something and you agree with them you're like boy that guy sure knows what's wrong uh, you know i agree with that guy about what was wrong with this thing since he knows so much about what's wrong with it that means he could make a better thing so he should the ability to to understand what's wrong with something has very little relation direct correlation with the ability to do a better thing. Well, case case in
0: point, Roger Ebert. I don't think that guy's made a lot of movies, but he sure well, does know was, that uh,
1: one. Beyond the value of the Dolls. Anyone in the chat room know that? I yeah. think he wrote that one. Yeah. Uh, perhaps not the greatest movie ever, you know, but it, but he just, sure does know what's good. That's a whole separate topic, debating a Robert e- uh, Roger Make Ebert's Make a note. In, Journal it. In movies. Yeah. Journal it and Tungle Me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I understand the sentiment of those people, but I've never written a book. Writing a book is really hard. You know, it, it took two years. This wasn't his main. I don't think it was Isaacson's main job for two years, but it was two years, you know, of pretty steady work and tons of interviews and talking to people. Uh, and, and I don't think he did a good enough job and didn't do it thoroughly enough. So to do a really good job, you'd have to send me back in time multiple years uh, and somehow support me for for multiple years of intensive research. And I would still probably do a cruddy job as it would be my very first book that I've ever written. So. Just because it, you agree with me about what's wrong with it and think that I, I, you know, I was right about that stuff doesn't mean I could do a better job. Uh, and so the flip side of that is, no, I'm not angry because I think I could have done uh, a better job. And, well, I, I'm not angry because... Uh, I think someone sh- someone should have done a better job. And at some points I was so angry that I entertained the silly notion that actually I could have done a better job. I think I mentioned that in the previous <laughs> show. But that's just like, that's being kind of silly. It's just like, you know, you get so angry at this thing. Like, this is so bad. Even I could have done a better, using me as an example to show how horrible it is. Uh, that even someone with no experience seems like he could have done a better job. But really, writing a book is very difficult. Um So a lot of the reactions I saw from the people who agreed with me were like, uh, I was looking forward to reading this book, but now that I heard the show, I'm not looking forward to it. Or I was going to get this book for Christmas or or I had an order and I canceled my order for the book. Uh, And some other people were asking, like, all these bad things, you think I should still read the book? Uh, As I think I said in the other show, but I'll make it more clear now, there's information in this book that can't be found elsewhere because he had exclusive access to Steve Jobs. Nobody else did. And complete access, right? Uh, and I, well, you can't find this information anywhere else except perhaps in every review of the book and interview with the author because he tends to pull out the the juiciest bits and and all the reviews pull out the juiciest bits. So I guess you can't get the information that way. But uh, most of that stuff is in the you know the the post iMac Jobs two era uh, of Apple, where previously it was very little uh, reporting because Apple's just sort of so private and all the employees were so private uh, after that fact. So if you are excited about this book, you should probably still get it. Because where else are you going to get that information? I mean, it it's you know, something is better than nothing. Reading a shallow book with with some new information is better than not having the information at all, right? If you want more or better information, read a whole bunch of the other books of this, that Isaacson pulled from. Right. I mentioned Infinite Loop in the in the pla- in the past uh show, uh Revolution of the Valley, Apple Confidential, maybe even something like The Second Coming of Steve Jobs or one of those other Steve Jobs books, because a whole bunch of them. Most of them are kind of trashy, but And if you want to get really deep, you can go to like Scully's book, Odyssey, or Emilio's book on the firing line just to get all sides of the story. If you really just want to, you know, know everything you could possibly know about it. But if you just want an overview, uh, I would say read Infinite Loop for early Apple stuff and for for later Apple stuff. What choices do you have? The only people that Apple employees and Steve Jobs himself decided to talk to were, you know, Isaacson. So... Just because I think the book was disappointing and a wasted opportunity doesn't mean you should not buy the book. If you're interested in this information, and you were before you heard the podcast, get the book anyway. Because knowing something is better than knowing nothing. Uh, let's see. Oh, i got to get through this follow-up. Come on. <clears throat> so the nitpickers, the the nitpicking objectors, people who don't like the nitpicking. Uh, I already went over that, you know, this is not the main reason I didn't like the book. But now I do want to actually discuss the nitpicking. And again, try not to lose sight of the context for the nitpicking. And I can wait about it. Uh, So my question for the anti-nitpicking people is, what kind of errors are permissible in a book of this type, like in a biography, you know? So some might say, uh, if someone got a date wrong by a day, like it was April 22nd, to April 21st, that's a permissible error, right? Or if someone misspelled, uh, someone's name or a pro other proper noun or something, uh, as long as we all knew who they were talking about, that's a permissible type of error. Uh, I think we can all agree that, you know, there's always going to be errors and that some errors are, are not worth getting worked up about, right? That's kind of the root of the anti nitpicking people is like, these are, these errors don't change the content or meaning of the book. Right. You shouldn't get worked up about them. Uh, my question on that concept is: Given that concept of permissible errors, is there a count limit beyond which those formally permissible errors become non-permissible? What if every proper noun in the book was misspelled? What if it was misspelled differently each time? You could still tell who it was, right? But like, there there has to be a a, a limit because if literally every proper noun was spelled incorrectly in a new incorrect different way every time, even if you could 100% understand who they were talking about, you'd be annoyed by it, right? Obviously, these are extremes. One extreme is like one or two errors that no one cares about. And the other extreme is just a massive number. And these are the same types of errors. Very, you know, the, the quote-unquote permissible errors, right? So that's the first point I want to make, that no matter how minor the error, n- the number of them, the quantity, is meaningful, right? Uh, the second point I want to make is the, the whole notion of people say, well, yeah, of course there are errors. The book was rushed out, right?
0: Because, that, you know, I've heard that a lot, that, that yes, it's a people big, are... This was, the book was rushed. How, how can you blame him? Why why be angry at him? The book was rushed.
1: Right, and presumably rushed, you know, because he died and they thought he would live longer or, you know, the, right. the, so on and so forth, All right. So my, my question on that is, all right, so does that does that make the errors okay? Does that make errors that would formerly not be permissible, suddenly permissible because the book was rushed? And you know, so, uh, example I was thinking of, like, say say you hired someone to paint in your house and the house painters got paint all over your window glass. And someone says, hey, did the painters do a good job? And you say, oh, well, they were in a hurry. like what's the answer did they do a good job well they were in a hurry right Uh, and so and the other thing is someone sent me just before the show a link to a New York Times interview with Isaacson and the New York (laughs) Times asked uh, did you publish the book early because you knew Mr. Jobs was going to die and what Isaacson said is the book was done in June I talked Ah. to my publishers and we couldn't quite figure out when to publish it there was no hard and fast publication date so we decided to set a date when Steve stepped down as CEO in August and then I said the end of the book was different then. It was him leaving Apple, of course, and the end had to be changed. So it seems like the only part that had to be changed in a rush job was the ending part, like the very ending, you know, like that he's he's not just leaving, that he's actually uh, you know, died. So that would include a couple of cancer chapters in the later parts of the book. So, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was done with it in June and the editing wasn't done. Uh, I don't know. But either way, it was rushed is not... It doesn't make doesn't change the 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 nature of the errors to be more permissible you know i it's just an excuse it's like it's like the house painters who are in a hurry well so what there's still a bad job painting the house uh and and the thing about biography is like if you don't care if you don't care about factual errors in a biography what do you care about what are you looking for in a biography uh obviously again there are errors that are that seem minor and that are permissible but the the number and severity of factual errors in this book regardless of their cause oh, it was rushed or whatever it'll be fixed in later versions it it lessens the value of the books. it makes it a worse book by, by our, one of the important things biography should get right is the facts of the of the person's life who they're talking about and the facts aren't just how things are spelled but you know significant factors of you know, who did what who did what on what date uh, uh you know product decisions and what you know Evolving classic macOS versus going with the next operating system. Like they the errors in this book escalated way beyond what I would consider permissible. And of the quote unquote permissible errors, there was a large number of them. So I, I think this lessens the quality of the book. Again, this is not why the book, the major reason that the book was disappointing to me, but it's like a symptom of other problems. And it, it you know, it's a demerit. It's it counts in the negative column for a biography. And it you know, the, the sort of apologists for this book, I don't know what quite their motivation is, but like it's okay to have lots of factual errors in a biography. Not a big deal. It was rushed. I, I just don't get that mindset. It doesn't mean that you say the book is horrible and you should never read it. I just said that you should read this to get the information out of it. And people may read it and enjoy it because this is exactly what they're looking for. I just think it's a missed opportunity uh, because it was a unique opportunity. So we had some misinterpretations of what I said. I had a section in the last podcast that was uh, Steve Jobs' Enemy of Progress or something like that. I thought that was like sufficiently tongue in cheek and facetious that people would understand that I wasn't actually saying that Steve Jobs is the enemy of progress. It was supposed that title's supposed to be, you know, funny. What I was mostly doing was poking holes in the idea that Steve Jobs was on the right side of every important decision that Apple made. Right. Uh, Because here were some uh, concrete examples of where he was on the wrong side and had to be convinced. And a lot of people said, well yeah, he had to be convinced, but he was successfully convinced and he eventually gave in to the people who wanted the other way. So that shows his genius. Well, isn't it better to be on the right side and not have to be convinced, uh, especially doing it in a big pouty way like you jerks? Fine, we'll do iPod on Windows. Uh, but yes, to his credit, he did he did allow the stuff even when he disagreed with. He allowed himself to be convinced by the other people around him, right? And people say yes, that shows his brilliance. I I just think there's you know what I was main point in that section was sort of the anti deification of Jobs, where some people think that everything he does is exactly right and it was carefully planned and even like his refusal of an idea was just his way of challenging people beneath him and, like he, he's like he's never wrong he's infallible and every even when it seems to be wrong he's really using his wrongness to manipulate other people into having stronger arguments against them yeah you know, it's just you can turn any argument into uh you know to support your opinion that steve jobs was infallible because he could say, well everything he did it worked out well in the end right i i you know again, enemy of progress. And obviously he's like the greatest CEO ever in terms of results. He turned the company around. No one he's arguing this facts. That's why the, uh, the title, Steve Jobs, enemy of progress is supposed to be funny because it's so obviously ridiculous. Uh, you know, but it, it is, I think this is something you, you get out of the, uh, this, uh, the, uh, the information in the book that there were some situations where he did things wrong. Someone in the, in the chat room says, uh, it's uh, challenging me to find a single example of anyone who says Jobs was infallible, like I'm setting up a straw man for this. But the people who write in are taking these examples where Jobs is on the wrong side of the decision and using them as evidence that uh, Steve Jobs wasn't actually on the wrong side of the thing. This is you know, a, a way that he was using to to uh, tell pe- make people have stronger arguments, and really he was on the right side of it and just wanted to see better arguments. Those people didn't say that he was infallible, but that type of convoluted logic makes me think that they're going to every argument they have is going to be in support of the uh, of the premise that he was correct. Because that's quite a way to bend over backwards. When there's like clear evidence that he just didn't want something that was obviously turned out to be really good and had to be convinced the other way. So I'm not trying to set up a straw man here. I'm just saying like when you see someone with going through those kind of contortions to support uh, this type of notion, you have to think well. Is there anything he could do that you would that you would admit was uh, you know a mistake or or something? So, all right. Enough about those people. Uh, uh, a big theme that uh, Gruber brought up in uh, on the talk show, and that I've got a lot of email about uh, from a lot of people, was from both people who liked the book and people who didn't like the book, was the idea that either way, uh, you know, Jobs picked this guy uh, and maybe he knew what he was getting maybe he picked this guy because he knew what kind of book Isaacson would write and he wanted that kind of book
0: right and that this is the, going a little bit more into detail is that that steve jobs in characteristic fashion understood very clearly exactly what isaacson's skill set and weaknesses were and that he selected him as opposed to any of the other people that we mentioned on any of the other shows, or you, because he knew that this is exactly the kind of book that he would write, and this is the kind of book he wanted to leave behind for the world.
1: Yes, and and I think it's interesting because, like I said, people who really liked the book and people who really didn't like the book both offered this theory. And uh, The first thing I have to say about this theory is I think – it smells a little bit like, to me, another example of the, you know, the, the cult of Jobs where everything he does is like a super master plan and he's infallible and his, you know, he exactly knew what kind of book this guy would write, and you know, or, or he picked him because he knew he could manipulate him into writing the book that he wanted, despite the fact that Jobs insisted that he never be seen, see anything in the book, have no limits on what his accesses or whatever, and yet still he just knew, like, by, by picking this guy, he could see the future of the exact book he would write. I think, I find that far-fetched. Far fetched that Steve Jobs would think that he could do that, and far fetched that he w- that it would be successfully pull it off. I, I think that's based on a, pr- a silly premise of infallibility, which, if anything, should be cut down by all the rest of this book showing how human Steve Jobs really was. Uh, now, there is a the possibility that he thought whoever he picked, that Jobs thought he could steer the conversation a certain way because he's you know a master manipulator in his own mind and in in reality, in many cases, right? Uh, and so he had to know something, like you know. Isaacson is kind of a news magazine type guy from time. He kind of knew the type of stuff he would write about. Uh, but I have a hard time believing that. Like the, the one thing I'll give Isaacson credit for is that I think if Jobs tried to refuse to talk about a certain topic or like, you know, just fenced him off and didn't, like, did type of invasive stuff you do when you have a reporter. Like, say, a reporter's talking to a politician and the, the reporter tries to nail him down. If the reporter stonewalls on something, or, you know, if the, if the subject stonewalls on something, that's something that Isaacson would have written about. He would have been like, I tried to talk to Jobs about what's this thing that I thought was really important and he stonewalled me, so I had to go around him and I had to press him on and I had to find other like, that's just reporter chasing a story. So I have a hard time believing that Isaacson was thwarted By Jobs, either by Jobs telling people not to talk to him or refusing, you know, like there was some hidden agenda that Isaacson wouldn't write about that because that's his bread and butter. The press saying, I tried to get this information, but they love, you know, like in 60 minutes, they love showing you getting the door slammed in their faces or whatever. Like that's just solid, regular, you know, TV magazine news reporting. There's no way that Isaacson would have would have been subjected to that and not written about it. So I take everything he said at face value. He had complete access. Jobs said nothing was off limits. He was allowed to talk to everybody. All evidence points to that. Every All rationality points to that. So if that's the case, I, I don't think that Jobs could have manipulated the content in any real way given the universal access and given the fact that, that Jobs never pressed back on it. right? But still, you could say, fine. So maybe maybe that's, that's the beauty of manipulation. Isaacson didn't even know he's been... He thought he had complete access and yet Jobs was still steering him in a certain direction. All right? So... My second answer to the, the Jobs picked this guy because he wanted it this way is either way, either way you believe he did it or didn't, it was successful or wasn't. You can say the same thing about the Star Wars special editions and the prequels. George Lucas wanted it this way. This doesn't make it good. That, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, again, it's the, the cult of Jobs. Well, because Jobs wanted it this way, you know, therefore it is good. No! I don't, I don't really care what Jobs wanted. It's like He wanted his book to be, you know, obviously he gets to pick who he gets to pick, but as an important historical figure, I am disappointed that I didn't get a better, more thorough, uh, more thoroughly researched uh, biography with access to the actual person and all the other, all the people involved, right? So if if that makes you feel better about it, then maybe you also feel better about the special editions of Star Wars and the prequels because George Lucas wanted it away. Because trust me, George Lucas wanted it that way. It's just no good. All right, finally, on, on a specific issue, and the show was talking about PA Semi, uh, and about, I, I I tried to be, uh, I tried not to, to make it sound like I was sure about this, because I wasn't. I kept saying, didn't they hire want PA Semi to make them PowerPC chips? Uh, you know, I, I, again, I said in the book that the, the book said they made the A4, and I'm like, yeah, that, that, that seems reasonable to me, but didn't they want them to make PowerPC chips, and how did that work out? Like, there's some big story with PA Semi that I remember seeing rumors of, and I would have liked it if the guy with access to all the actual people, including Steve Jobs himself, would have expanded on that story Uh, as an example. That's that's another interesting thing I would have liked to have seen there is we saw a little bit in the early chapters about Jobs and the Lisa team and how like if you weren't, even if you were in the same company, if you weren't on his team, you were kind of like on the outs and how it kind of canned half the Lisa team and just those were the loser guys because they weren't. It's like you're not with me, you're against me, even within the same company. I, I would have loved to have seen in the modern era how how that worked when, for example, Apple purchased another company because those were all outsiders and, you know, how did they assimilate into the team? Like, at that point, the the entire company was Steve Jobs' team and then you buy PA Semi with these other people who weren't Apple employees, you know, how how did how did Jobs handle that? How did, was he more accepting? Did he integrate them into the fold, or was he just unforgiving? And like those were all the losers, and he fired most of them. And just get, like I wanted to know more about Pi Semi because I thought it, it, it was it's an important part of the history of the company. It would have been illuminating to Steve Jobs' character. Uh, but in terms of the specific case of me thinking that they were they were uh, purchased to make a power chip, the chronology was wrong because Pi Semi was was bought in two thousand eight, but the Intel transition was over by two thousand six. Now Pi Semi originally did make a series of PowerPC chips, or maybe they're just reference designs or something. Uh, and so the rumors, I think were like that Apple was interested in what PA semi was doing kind of in a vague way because they were just desperate for anyone to make a fast PowerPC chip for them. They were, you know, I wanted IBM to do it and, you know, the, the Motorola was dropping the ball, you know, so way back before PA semi was purchased, there may have been some rumors and interest uh, revolving around a PowerPC chip from PA semi for Apple's purposes, but that was never gone into in the book and, uh, and it's still just rumors. So, finally, we can resume where I, where I left off. Pretty good, 1230. Resume where I left off in the last show. Oh, uh, if I could find my spot here. All right. Uh, I read off all the sections, the sections I had remaining in the last show, and I added one to the top of it. First, well, do you want to do a sponsor before I go into this part of the show?
0: May may I? You may. All right. If, if I may... Uh... We would like to say thank you to our first sponsor. It is squarespace.com. The secret behind exceptional websites. I don't know if I told you this, John. but I've been been bringing back some of my older older sites, and I've been thinking, man, I you know I don't want to totally get rid of these. What can I do with them? And I'm 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 going to be turning to Squarespace because I'll, I'll tell you what they did: fully hosted, completely managed environment for very quickly creating beautiful website in a matter of minutes. They host everything. They're on a grid, they scale, they're in the cloud, all of that. So you don't have to worry about servers or uptime or getting linked by Daring Fireball. All of this is just handled. If you like designing websites, you can. You have full and complete control over the HTML and CSS. If you don't, if you don't even know what CSS stands for, it doesn't matter. You can click and point and amazing things will happen. You can pick from there. They just released a whole bunch of, New, fresh designs and new templates that you can check out. All of this is is included. This isn't extra. This doesn't cost any more, and it's very affordable anyway. Uh, but here's here's the really cool thing: uh, all you need to do is click in a couple places, and you can get full integration. Whether it's analytics, whether it's integrating Twitter. Uh, whatever you want to do. And they can import your existing blog, typically in like one step. They even bring over the images. They copy your posts. They make sure all the links work. Uh, You can try them out for for free for two weeks, 14 days. You don't need to even give them a credit card. Uh, But if it turns out that you like them, you can get 20% off for six months. How do you do that? You go to squarespace.com slash five by five. And once you're there you use the coupon code emotion chip eleven so emotion chip spelled out and then uh, the number eleven and you'll get twenty percent off for six months squarespace.com that's a that?
1: reliable uh, Kieran Healy in the chat room pointed out the other aspect of the uh, the theory that like jobs picked this guy on purpose uh, because he knew what he would be getting the other theory is that it's uh, it's part of Jobs's character as part of his vanity that he wanted to pick the guy who also had done biographies of einstein and franklin which is kind of a it's believable but then again someone with such amazing attention to detail i don't know it's hard it's hard to figure out like obviously i think he picked the wrong guy uh for the purpose of history and just you know all it, for, for the good of all of us uh, as readers right I would be interested to see if he read the book if when he finished with it, if he was still alive, if he thinks he re- picked the right guy in terms of if he got what he wanted. Again, I don't think him getting what he wanted. It changes my opinion of the end result one way or the other, because I don't really care what he wanted. But biography is not about, you know, it's supposed to be about a historical record or understanding the person. It's not about satisfying the person the biography is about. Right. So a lot of people have asked, uh, you know, who should have written it? And I mean, you know, we're talking about like when I was in the depths of my despair about it, that like anybody, anybody I knew who had written anything online could have done a better job because they would have been at the very least like, you know, enthusiastic and hungry about it. Uh, that was actually a quote from this. This, this New York Times one on one is full of things that make me angry. Uh, where is this quote? So one one of the questions was uh, to, to Isaacson, do you worry that your name will always be linked with Steve Jobs? Uh, and Isaacson says, no, that will pass. I have a varied life. Steve Jobs was just one of many biographies I've written, which is true. Uh, and that's another reason I thought that any any random, you know, Apple fan on the web who can write would have not considered the Steve Jobs bio just being like, nah, it's just another thing I'm doing, right? They would have just been hardcore, completely into it. Uh, uh, maybe they wouldn't have done a better job either. But I'm, I'm just saying like that. That's that's emblematic of one of my main complaints about the, the bio is that it just it didn't seem like a big deal for him and he didn't treat it as seriously as I thought he should have and go into depth that he thought he should have. So, so seriously speaking, you know, who, who should have written this? Who's, you know, who would have done a better job? Now I don't read a lot of biographies. I only read a handful in my life, but I I knew right away, like even before I started reading the the, the book, when I knew there was going to be official jobs bio, like I, you know, I had fantasies that this would be the person to do it. So my favorite biography that I've ever read is the power broker by Robert Caro. Uh, it's my favorite biography for many reasons, many of which may not necessarily be relevant to other people. First of all, I grew up on long Island, uh, which is where the, the, the story takes place. It's a biography of Robert Moses, who, uh, was a, a big part of the, uh, the infrastructure, uh, in the long Island, New York Metro area in terms of making roads and bridges and parks and everything. Uh, my father worked for the department of transportation in New York state. I'm, uh, you know, I love the beaches on Long Island and the parkways that he's made and Robert Moses is one of my favorite beaches, uh, you know, in, in the entire world that I've been to. So obviously I'm predisposed to like this book, but it's not just me. I, I believe that it, uh, Robert Caro won the Pulitzer Prize for this biography and and also Robert Caro is best known, I think, or most known now for doing a an insane biography of, uh, is it Lyndon Johnson? Man, I should have, I should have looked this up. Uh, he's, he's in the process of doing a multi-volume giant biography of one of the, you know, of Lyndon Johnson, I believe. Uh, but, but the power broker is just about one guy. It's about a thousand page book. Uh, and it's, if it's very, it's kind of dry, I would say. Like if you, I'm going to say everyone go out and read the power broker because it's a thousand pages about a biography of a person you've probably never heard of. Uh, and it goes into insane detail. Every angle, every aspect of this person's life is expo- explored. You know, ten ways to Sunday. Any person who's ever known him, ever talked to him, ever worked with him, anyone involved in any situation, all sides of it, extensively reported and cataloged and described. And there is an overall narrative to it, which people do like. Again, it is a thousand, <laughs> thousand-page book, so it may be tough to get through. But the, one of the reasons people uh, seem to love the Power Broker is that Caro does weave a narrative through it, and. I mentioned the previous thing that Isaacson, you know, you can do a biography where you just sort of report the facts and you can do one where you have like an editorial opinion. And I, and I complained about Isaacson because he mostly stayed out of it and then just threw in these little jabs that were not supported. Caro takes the approach of he's got an opinion of of the life of of Robert Moses. He's got a story, he's got a narrative that he's built, and he, hasn't, it didn't, he didn't come in with the narrative. He didn't come in and say, here's what I think, uh, I think Robert Moses is a jerk, and I'm going to build a book around that. He, he arrived at the narrative by studying the life extensively, and then weave that narrative into it to help you understand the significance of every event and how it was influenced by the character of the person and how it changed the character of the person. So that's why people really love this biography. Uh, it, was, it was finished in 1974, so it's a very old book. And it talks about events that were happening before then. Uh, Robert Moses, I think, died in like uh, the early '80s. So Robert Moses was alive when this book was written. And if you read this book, like, if you really want to know what do I think a grant biography is, read this book. It's a thousand pages. When you're done with it, I hope you'll understand what what in my dreams I expected out of Steve Jobs' job biography. Right. Uh, so this is that's the type of person to do it. And that's the type of thing I wanted. And when you get done with that book, like, hold your ears now. He did seven interviews with Robert Moses. You read that book and you're like, this is from seven interviews? Now, how many interviews do you think uh, that Isaacson did with Steve Jobs? I think he said something like 40 or more. Sounds about right. Like, a huge number of interviews with Steve Jobs. And you're going to be like, 40 interviews equals the Isaacson book, and then seven interviews equals this giant thing? Like, no way. Well, it's because he didn't just take from Robert Moses. First of all, Robert Moses was kind of like Steve Jobs, and he wasn't like... It, it was different and Robert Moses wasn't like, come write a biography of me, you know, it was not all gung ho for the, the, the whole thing. It was kind of more of an adversarial relationship. Uh, it, it wasn't, it was, the, it was not like the Jobs thing. So that's why there's fewer interviews, but did that stop him? Did he say, well, I've only got seven interviews and this is what he told me. So that's all I can write about. No, he did the legwork for just years and years of legwork to just find out everything you possibly know. It's kind of like a biography of a historian where the, everyone's dead and you've got to figure it out. It's that. Combined with all the best of well, what if everyone's still alive? Because the people were still alive for the most part. He talked to everyone involved, everyone, and just did his homework and just made a so much more insightful, compelling, informative, educational biography than this Isaacson thing. Now, this is, uh, people can say this is a high standard. Oh, so it should have been a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, a biography by Robert Caro. You know, high bar. I understand that. Uh, and, and maybe the Lyndon Johnson thing is, is too much because it's like, you know... Uh, multiple volumes, I think it's still not done. But, uh, if anyone wants to read a great biography, read The Power Broker, uh, and, maybe if it was half as good as that, I would have been ecstatic if if it was, but in my dreams, that's what the Jobs bio would have been like. Someone in the chat room asked how many interviews I would have done with Steve Jobs. Yeah, I was going to ask that. As many as I possibly could. I mean, why, why how many,
0: do, do you think that the again, I think you quoted 40, I think I remember reading 40 interviews uh or, or something along those lines. Now, considering that, do you think that the interviews were limited uh, by Steve Jobs, or do you think that that Isaacson simply felt that did he had enough or 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 why why were there as many as 40 or the flip side? why were there only 40?
1: Well, I have to think that the major limiting factor was Steve Jobs' schedule. It was like how m- you know he's sick; he's got two companies to run. It's going to be hard to get on his schedule at all. Uh, but on the flip side of that, it wasn't like he had three months to do this and had to jam all the interviews. He had two years. He seems like he sp- even when he wasn't like interviewing him in terms of, like one on one, he seems like he spent a lot of time with him. Like he was with him; he was hanging out. Right, this is you know this is my biography. He's just going to come with me. I'm not sitting down and talking to him in a Q and A session, but he's there seeing stuff happen. Right, uh, so I think you know the number of interviews. It's I'll bet that's as many as they could get. He could get on his schedule, and and you know I don't know if he was doing this as a full time job. Isaacson was doing this as a full time job, so maybe he had other things to do too. uh it, you know, I bet when Robert Caro was writing The Power Broker. I don't know if he was doing other things, too. I don't know how many years it took. But, like, you know, you, you try to get a, as many interviews as you possibly can. If you can't get them with the guy, you talk with the other people. So I don't, I don't, you know, what I'm really contrasting the book with is not not saying that he didn't do enough interviews or just that, like, I guess he, he, he squandered his time in those interviews because it, or or overestimated. I I don't know. It seems like he... he with 40 interviews worth of material, he came up with a book that was such a pale shadow of a thing that only had five interviews with the subject, an adversarial subject at that. What what the Power Broker kind of shows is that you can make a great biography with minimal access to the guy, but having some access to the guy is better than none at all. And the reason I had even higher standards to the Jobs bio is because I think Jobs is a more important figure in history than Robert Moses, and you had unlimited access to him. So it should have been just been a bonanza, right? Because you had... All, unlimited access to the other non-subject people, all his friends, all his coworkers. you know, the people, most of them are still alive you know, and they're not stopping you from talking to them you know, you do the legwork and get them and on top of that you have basically unlimited access to jobs limited only by your, your schedules together it's not like he's refusing to talk to you and stuff like that uh, so yeah, I don't think it was a count thing so on the onto the next section in my tail. Now, th- now, people are thinking, oh, I want to hear part two where you just complain about the book some more. Maybe I kind of just did that a little bit. But mostly uh, when I read off those headings, this, I'm going to be talking about the content of the book finally. <laughs> you know, those headings that I read last week were about things that were in the book. So this is going to be more talking, hopefully, more talking about Jobs himself and less talking about the author and, and the whole process of writing because there was new information in this book. As I said, he was the only guy with access. He got stuff that people didn't get because he's the only one the Jobs talked to. So the first section is uh, Jobs the TV Watcher. Uh, This is something a lot of people wondered about, like with the whole Apple TV thing and it's a hobby. Some people said, well, the reason Apple TV stinks is because Steve Jobs doesn't watch TV because if he watched TV, he wouldn't be able to tolerate this cruddy thing. Other people said the Apple TV exists because Steve Jobs must watch TV because he's annoyed by actual regular TV and he wants something simpler. And as far as he's concerned, anything is better than that horrible, you know, uh, existing TV system. So there were stories in the book about that. Uh, one was talking about when he was working at Apple at Pixar full time and he was just kind of burning the candle at both ends and exhausting himself that he was said like when he came home from, when he finally got home from work from, after working these two, uh, you know, stressful jobs and commuting and everything, all he could do was, was plop down and watch a half an hour of TV and vegetate when he got home.
0: Yeah. He couldn't even talk.
1: Yeah. Which is like, you know, you think, Oh, well Steve jobs, he's, he only does things that are like enriching and artful and he would never, you know, he would never have a television in his house. And now he's just like us. He, you come home, you're tired you can't think you just, you just want to plop down in front of the TV and vegetate. Who knows what he's watching? Maybe he's watching Jersey Shore for all we know, like people are people, right? (laughs) Right. But this is again, the anti-deification of jobs is one of the the things that the, if if people had never read another book about Steve jobs, you might've been shocked by all of the, the human qualities of him. But most of the books of Steve jobs get into that. Like, you know, well, you may love Steve jobs, but he's really a jerk. That's the big theme. But this one also got into like, you know, he's not a super being. He's just like us. Right. Uh, and during recuperation from one of his uh, procedures or surgeries or something, he said he signed up for Comcast cable, and then you know, in typical this is typical Steve Jobs fashion, he called up uh, the the person who ran Comcast, and the, the guy it was uh, Brian Roberts, and the guy said, "I thought he was calling to say something nice about it." And Roberts recalled. Instead, he told me it sucks. Yeah, so that's what you can imagine Steve Jobs doing. He signs up for Comcast, gets it all hooked up, sits down in front of it, starts to watch it, and everybody's trying to use that guide or something or whatever. And he's going to be like, this is horrible. So this this leads credence to the idea that Steve, Steve Jobs understands at a personal level how horrible television is, even if he's not like an obsessive TV watcher. You know, he he knows that it stinks, and he does watch television, and I guess the illness and stuff like that made him watch even more of it. So I thought that was a, a new piece of information so people can probably stop speculating about the, the idea that uh, Apple TV stinks because Steve Jobs doesn't watch TV or thinks TV is stupid or has no idea about TV. Obviously not true. Uh, Jobs is a success. They had a lot of good quotes from Ive in here uh, and I wish they had talked more not just to Ive but to his entire team and all the people involved in it uh, because it is a good example of when I wrote that uh, I forget. I think it was after he died when I wrote yeah, it was when I wrote my my personal remembrance of Steve Jobs the the big takeaway i I was pulling from his life was the idea that all of the bad things that happen when large groups of people get together aren't inevitable. Uh, and so if you, in, in big companies this is a particular example, but any large group of people were like, you know, in, in the, the Dilbert kind of atmosphere of anyone who's worked for a big corporation, we all know the things that happen in big corporations and how just poisonous they are to doing the right thing, to success, to losing sight of what's important. And that, that, I think, is is the is going to be the most important lasting contribution of, of Steve Jobs to the world of human endeavor, even beyond the particulars of technology and stuff like that, is that he proved that you can be a gigantic company and not be idiotic, not be like Dilbert. You know, there was lots of people with theories like, well, that's great when you're a startup, but when you're in a real big, serious company, you can't make decisions like that. Actually, you can. And actually, it works really well. And the reason he was able to do that was because he was in a unique position because he had a huge amount of power, huge loyalty from his employees and the board and all these other reasons. But like, but you know, it was a, a perhaps a, not a, a unique scenario. And of course he was, you know, brilliant and, and a, right. A lot of the time and stuff like that, but it just, it just shows that you can, you know, you can do it. And so one of the examples that I've gave was before jobs came back, all the, the rest of Apple wanted from the design group, was the engineers would, would make the computer and then they would hand it off to the design guys and say, okay, put something nice around that and make it, you know, and the engineers would make a cheap thing and, and the, you know, and they would say, just put put something on put a case on that or something. Like, and that's not what a designer wants to hear. He doesn't want to be given a blob and told to put something around it to make it look nice. That's like uh, Gruber's old essay, uh, Ronco Spray-On Usability. That's like Ronco Spray-On Design. Well, we've already designed the computer, but here you go, just make it look nice or something and don't make it too expensive. All right. And and I was about to quit because of this, because who wants to be in a company like this This is why companies that operate like regular companies have trouble attracting great talent and great designers. Uh, You know, you can imagine if you work for like Samsung or Dell or something and you're a designer and you just really wanted to, you want to be the Johnny Ive of Dell. You can't because the people at Dell don't value you as much as Steve Jobs understood and valued Ive. So I was ready to quit. And when Jobs took over, he gave Ive a pep talk and, you know, said, look at this, that's not the way it's going to work from now on, you know, I, I'm here now, that's not the way I run the show, trust me, you should stick around because you and I will work together and we'll make we'll make great things uh, another example that that I have gave was that he wanted to, uh, I think it was the iMac he wanted to put a handle on it and apparently putting handles uh, are, are expensive, there's multiple pieces and a big recess thing and it has to be strong enough for you to, to grip and all this stuff uh, and uh, he's saying that, you know uh, you would expect him to say like, and that's what's special about Apple because, you know uh, other companies wouldn't have allowed me to make this expensive uh, feature that seems like a frill or whatever. The what he said instead was that, you know, when he was arguing for the handle and why why you should get it, because the engineering would always be pushing back against them and then Jobs would come in and intercede and say, no, we got to do it, right? He said, I've says, at the old Apple, I would have lost that argument. Not at another company, but literally at the old Apple. Before Jobs came back, even at Apple, I would have lost the argument for this expensive, seemingly needless handle. But with Jobs there, he said... No, that's cool. I like the handle. I get it. I understand why a designer would want that, and we're keeping it. And I don't care that it costs more money. Uh, again, the iMac case, again, is saying that it costs $60 to make a case for each iMac, which is three times as much as a regular computer case. And uh, I think this is Isaac is saying this, or paraphrasing something that I have said, that other companies would have demanded uh, presentations and studies to show whether, like, are we going to make our money back on this, you know? if we spend 60 bucks on a translucent case, are we going to sell enough more units to make up for the cost of tooling and everything? I'm like, no, there's no profit and loss study. Right. There's no, you know, return on investment job says it looks cool. We're sticking to it. That's what a small company would do. And big companies just, you know, Oh, you got to have the PowerPoint presentation. So I'll bring in the finance guys. They got to look at this. That disease is why big companies suck. And you know, and it's just, it's very rare to get anyone so in charge of such a big company that they can make those decisions without the shareholders yelling without like the board yell- you know there's always people second guessing so oh, you gotta act like a risk averse you know you gotta act like a-, a big company don't do that uh but at apple you know uh, that's not how things work when jobs came back and tim cook pointed out that and he said this on earning calls as well and later uh, this might have been where it came from in the book that they don't have uh Profit and loss for divisions like the, the division, uh, you know, for design and engineering and, uh, you know, manufacturing all don't have their own profit and loss statements. And, and they're not like they're not like pitted against each other where they say, well, I think this case would be great in this computer. But if you put this on there, my, my profit and loss ratio for the manufacturing uh, branch of the company is going to be horrible this year because there's no way we can sustain having to make all that new tooling. And, you know, and, and typically says we don't have divisions. We have one profit and loss for the whole company. So they're not they're not worried about like this little empire over here and software and this little piece over here. And like, they're all pitted against each other to make their bottom lines look good they so say, well, the manufacturing do- doofuses did poorly this year, but the engineering guys who make hardware did great. And, and the software guys, you know, it's one profit and loss for the whole company. If this will make a better product, let's all work together to make a better product. And very few big companies do that. They, you know, they, they, managers and middle managers build little empires within the company, they just say like, well, my division is doing great and that, that goes towards my bonus and my raise and and that kind of stuff is poison to, you know, if you're losing sight of what you're supposed to be doing, you're supposed to be making a great, whatever you're supposed to make, a great doorknob, a great knife, a great computer. That's the goal. It's not, the goal is not to make sure your division Of the knife manufacturing opposition that that acquires steel did great this year because you found a way to get really cheap steel. It's only a little bit less worse than the old steel that you were getting, but boy, look at the bottom line for your division now. You're just doing gangbusters, and you get a raise, and you go up to a VP. Right? That's not that's the way business works. That's not how it should work. Uh, And the, the success of Apple. It's so great that Apple succeeded in this because the first version of Apple was the company that made the Macintosh, which was so ridiculously better than MS DOS. To anyone with half a brain and yet it lost in the market. And that was depressing. It was like, you can make this great thing that just is just obviously so much better, but for reasons unrelated to the quality of the product, it's going to fail. And it's like, well, maybe that's maybe you can't do that. Maybe that type of thing where when you're a big company and you do make a great product, maybe that doesn't work. Well, I'm just so glad the the jobs to era came along to disprove that theory, to say, no, actually, making great products and not doing all that big company BS can and does lead to. Success, crazy success, biggest company in the entire United States, success, that kind of, you know, it's inarguable. You can't say, oh, that's not you. That doesn't work. You can't do that unless you're a startup. Steve Jobs is
0: ethos. It's the next section. Ethos. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do a sponsor (laughs) while you prepare for this. Sure. Go for it. Second sponsor, longtime sponsor shopify.com the internet's most elegant customizable and scalable hosted e-commerce platform i use these guys uh, myself anytime that i sell uh five by five t-shirts by the way we're, we're coming up with some but i use i do everything with them why i know how to do html css I build websites i build five by five i know how to do i've been doing this for years why because it, it, they make it easier they make it faster. Because my time, I would rather be spending my time on the shows with you than like trying to make e-commerce work because it, that, that's hard stuff. So what do you get with Shopify? You get your own online store. You can accept credit cards. You can use your own domain if you want or theirs. You customize your store as much as you want or as little as you want. They've got like 100, more than 100 professionally designed templates. Or you just do your own. doesn't matter. There's nothing to download. There's nothing to maintain. There's nothing to worry about. And uh, it's 100% PCI DSS compliant. So if you don't even know what that means, it's, it's legal stuff that you don't want to deal with on your own. And you can totally trust them with your business. They're fully secure. They have they have sites that, that do millions of dollars per month in sales. So trust me, yours, yours will be just fine here. And uh, for a limited time, you can get three months free. Normally, they give you a month free to try it out. Use use coupon code 5 by 5 you get three months free. And try these guys out. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what you want to sell. Uh, physical stuff, electronic stuff, you can do it. At shopify.com. Check them out. Love those guys.
1: All right. The ethos thing, it was in reference ethos. to to Android. Uh and so uh I assume was asking like, you know, Android doing better. This is when Android market share was really going up or whatever. And the the upshot seemed to be from jobs that even if Google's approach to selling Android to like giving away free to everybody, you know, uh ends up winning in the marketplace, which by which I think he means like selling more copies than iOS devices or whatever. Jobs found it repellent, and this is a quote from Jobs, "I like being responsible for the whole user experience. We, we do it not to make money. we do it because we want to make great products, not crap like Android. So this is this is Jobs and uh, pretty unequivocally saying, "It's better to lose than to suck. Can you imagine a CEO of any other company in the entire universe saying that? You never say that. You're going to say your shareholders to your board. Well, you're right. This uh, even <laughs> even if even if they're 100 percent right in that other strategy, that other, even that other company's going to crush us in the market and get more market share. I'd still rather have a better product than than suck and have good market share. That's just that's like anti-capitalist, anti. Uh, you know, it, you know. It seems like it's just the opposite of everything having to do with business. I think in reality, it is. You know, it's the it's one of the best strategies you can possibly ever have because. The other strategy leads you to eventually make crap, and crap eventually comes back to bite you. You know, so the Android iOS thing has not worked out. But Jobs is clearly coming down on the side; is better to lose than to suck, which is just you know crazy for uh, a CEO to say that, especially CEO of the biggest company in the world. And I think that's you know the reason he's the CEO of, was the CEO of the biggest company in the world. That particular attitude. Uh, I guess something thing when he was talking about the new Apple headquarters, they were planning the big giant round glass spaceship looking the, thing mother, the, yeah, the true mothership yeah the ufo uh, and uh you know obviously jobs was not heavily designed in, in the uh heavily involved in the design of that and at one point uh the architects wanted to allow people to open and close the windows got glass everywhere or whatever and uh, jobs didn't like the idea so that would just allow people to screw things up and that's, that's the that's the the soundbite from that that's that's classic jobs attitude and depending on how you feel about Jobs, you can say, you know, this is why Jobs is a big jerk. He's such a control freak. He didn't want people to open windows. What if somebody's really hot, right? And what if they need to open a window? Steve <laughs> Jobs says, no, you got to suffer and sweat because I don't want the windows open because I like them to be closed. All right? That's the the anti. The pro side of it would be, uh, if, have you ever been in an office or like a, a building where it does have windows that open and close? Sure. And someone somewhere decides that they're too hot, so they open the window, but then it makes a bunch of other people freezing or it triggers a the thermostat to blast the heat on someone else. You know. That's, I think, what Jobs meant by this will allow people to screw things up. It will allow people to make local decisions that have a global detrimental effect. So he'd rather say, just seal the thing up and you design the thing so everybody is comfortable. That's your goal, to make the great thing. If you allow stuff to be open and closed, there's too many variables and you're going to get individual people making decisions that hurt other people and it's just a constant fight to turn the thermostat up, turn it down, open the window, close the window, different seasons, different times of day. Uh, You can kind of tell what side I come down on this. Like, you either design the building to have, to have the windows open and close, or you design it not to be. But don't kind of say, well, we'll design the building so we'll be comfortable with everything sealed up but people can open windows if they want. That sounds like an Android approach, right? Well, we'll do it this way but also you can have that other thing too. We just, we'll give them the option. Like it's up to them. It's up to them. It's up to the people who live in the building to design their own building experience. Whereas Jobs is more like, you know like the Paul Rand thing with the next logo i will solve your problem though no, you you don't have to design your living experience you you know i'm going to come to you with a building that's good to live in and i will succeed or fail based on how well i do that i'm not going to make you a building with every possible option and tell you to design it as you live in it because that's not the way jobs or apple worked emotional jobs the next section again if you read any other book about jobs it's these are not revelations that he was very emotional, but Isaacson sure loved this topic, so he came, you know, anytime he got a chance to tell a story about Steve Jobs crying or some other thing, uh, you know, he he went for that one. Uh, and I think that is a, a change from the previous books. The previous books would talk about this stuff, but they wouldn't hammer on it as much because they were a little bit more reverential, like Stephen Levy and the other books of people who are like devoted Apple fans would shy away from really focusing on when Jobs was a jerk for reasons not related to making people do better things like he was just mean he was just punitive or he cried like they wouldn't they wouldn't focus on that because it seemed like well I don't want Steve Jobs not to like me because I'm a big fan you know so Isaacson was not that into Steve Jobs (laughs) again we talked about that earlier so he had no problem telling him yeah the guy cries all the time stuff and he's a big baby and he's a jerk sometimes for no reason Uh, the thing I focused on was like when when he introduced the iPad and then he was getting all these emails for people complaining there's no USB cord and stuff like that like and we you know Remember when the iPad came out, and you know, I bet Gruber had something about these people don't get it. You shouldn't have, you know, USB on it is stupid, blah blah. And you just assume that if it can, if if those criticisms can roll off the back of all the Apple fans who are like, you know, I think the iPad is great, and then people would complain, yeah, you think the iPad's so great, but doesn't have USB, it's so dumb, and you know, you would defend, you would become the defender of Apple and say, well, I think it's better without USB for this reason. You get into a big flame war, right? But you you would assume. That these things would just roll off the back of Steve Jobs because, like, you're just a, a you know guy having a flame war on some forum or whatever, or, you know, or just blogging about it. There's no big, you know, you're fighting with this guy. Be like, but Steve Jobs, he doesn't care about this stuff. But Steve Jobs is there reading his emails about people complaining. There's no USB cord, and he's getting depressed. He's getting sad. He's he's there getting bummed out, right? It's just, it's it's a very human moment, and and it's 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 like, why are you doing this to yourself? Like, you know, he just. You would have think that over the years, you would have built up a thick skin about it. Like, how does this help him be a better person? Does it, does it help him because the next time he's going to put a USB port on it? No, it's not. You know, he's not taking this input and factoring it into his future design decisions, but he, he still feels sad about it. it. You know, a very sensitive guy. Can you imagine, like, introducing the iPad and then going home and that, that night being depressed? Wouldn't you be like, if you introduced the iPad, be like, "Woo, I'm king of the world, you know? <laughs> I, I just put out the iPad. Eat it. Suck, like, it was an awesome product. Like, it sold well. Everything was good about it. And he, all he can do is focus on that people yelling at him in emails. Like, don't read your email then if you're going to be sad about it. Uh, and, and the other one was he wrote that that Thoughts on Flash thing. Again, you're like, oh, well, he didn't write that. The PR wrote, wrote it, you know. But, you know, it's like, well, he's a control freak. So he had to write it himself. But he's writing it, and he's, like, showing it to his friends. And he's like, uh you know the other people on the board is like does this sound like i'm just trying to stick it to adobe like he's bouncing it off his friends like i don't you know he's a he's self-aware enough to know that i don't, I don't want to sound like it like a you know I, like i'm trying to make a point here i don't want to sound like i'm just being mean to adobe because i'm angry at them and he's you know he's he's sensitive about that and he's talking to his friends like the same way you would be if you're trying to do a, a blog post and you don't want to like offend somebody but you're trying to
0: right do i hey, do i sound do i sound too mean or do i sound like a jerk in this that's what he's doing
1: yeah, you know, I, of course, I think one of the big problems is that the the relationships that seem like Steve Jobs fostered in his life with those people is like, when you talk to your board member about that, that's not really a, a an, even a board member, but it's certainly an employee or whatever. That's not kind of, what is he going to say? It's like, yeah, you do sound like a jerk. I mean, a, again, the book t- said like, oh, Steve Jobs likes that. He likes when you push back on him. And maybe that's true, but I still think people feel intimidated by him. So it probably was difficult for him to get honest because he's just so tough and has that personality to get honest feedback, right? But the fact that he's seeking it from his friends, you know, is is interesting and really highlights the the human aspects of Steve Jobs that most other books talked about but didn't dwell on. And you could be left to wonder whether, uh, you know, how real they were. Jobs in politics. This section you wouldn't expect to be much of in the book because he's not like you don't see jobs out there like campaigning for people. And, you know, he's not he's not an actively political person. Most tech CEOs aren't, but, you know, a couple of big, big CEOs of companies do come down on the side of one party or another. Uh, but Jobs, true to form, is not not a party partisan at all. So the, the first encounters is when you was talking to uh, Rupert Murdoch, who he's apparently, you know, buddy-buddy with and hangs out with because, you know, they're two captains of industry. Sure. But they, they have a lot in common because, you know, who else, who do you have a lot in common with when I mean, you're Steve Jobs? I guess Rupert Murdoch, right? Uh, and so he's hanging out with him, but what does he tell him when he comes over to dinner? He says... This is a quote. You're blowing it with Fox News. <laughs> get Rupert Murdoch over dinner and tell him that. And right. th- the best thing is, like, you can tell Jobs has thought about this. Like, if you just put Rupert Murdoch in a room with a bunch of liberals, they like screaming him about how he's evil and stuff like that. What Steve Jobs says, and this is a great example of him. You know, it's not just he has insight and has like narrowed it down to like here's here's the problem with Fox News. And I thought this was one of the best summaries I've ever seen of Fox News. Doesn't get into screaming hysteria, liberal conservative. Stuff like that. Uh, this is a quote from Jobs. The axis today is not liberal and conservative. The axis, the axis is constructive, destructive. And you've cast your lot with the destructive people. Fox has become an incredibly destructive force in our society. So he sidesteps the whole liberal, conservative, positive thing. It's like, are you, are you building things up or are you tearing things down? Like, you know, it, it, this is the only quote there. It doesn't go into it much more detail. But I thought there was a great summary of what would you tell Rupert Murdoch to get him to understand what you don't like about Fox News. If you tell him I don't like it because I don't like conservative opinions, well, if Rupert Murdoch likes, cons- you're not going to convince Rupert Murdoch to not be a conservative, right? That, that's a losing argument. So Steve Jobs just gets to the heart of it and says it's, it's, con- it's about construct- destructive. It's about, you know, building things up and tearing things down. I thought that was uh, great. And uh, I don't know what Rupert Murdoch took from that, but at least someone's telling that to Rupert Murdoch's face. Uh, a meeting with Obama on the other side, just to show he's not, uh, you know, a partisan one side or the other. He didn't want to meet with Obama because he, he didn't want to be like the token CEO meeting. Like no, I'm not going to meet with him. He wants to come fly in and talk to me just so he can say, talk to a CEO. I'm paraphrasing. This is not a direct quote, but that, that kind of sentiment where he's like, so what, he's the president. I don't want to be his, like he's aware when other people are trying to manipulate him because I'm sure he does similar things to be, you know, to get in good and get on the covers of magazines and stuff. He didn't want, he didn't want to be manipulated even if it's by the president. He'll turn down the meeting. Right. Uh, and when he did finally meet Obama, uh, they got their acts together and his friends persuaded him to do it or whatever. Why what does he come in and say, Hey, I'm Steve jobs. Well, I don't know if it's quite this blunt, but this is the quote in the thing you're headed for a one term presidency. Right. That's the way if you I don't, that, know, I don't you imagine they
0: walk in the door and, and he's like, Hey, and Oh, by the way, I mean, it, I'm sure it was a quote from the conversation.
1: Right. But like, you know, he, I, I guess that's the advantage of being Steve jobs. You don't have any problem tell, speaking truth to power. In fact, you refuse to meet with them. If it seems like you're being manipulated when you get there. You're going to say, you know, and he went into all the reasons why, you know. Because he was too e- too eager to please everybody, and like all basically all the ways that you're not like me is why you're going to be one term presidency, which which may be true. I think a lot of liberals sometimes think that, like, boy, if only Obama had the uh, character and nerve of Steve Jobs, I would be more happy with him as the president, right? Uh, and then he also said a whole bunch of business about the administration needs to be more business friendly. This was a very interesting thing, which the the author didn't comment on at all, and I would have loved to have seen more exploration and talking with his hippie friends about this. So he's got, uh. A whole bunch of important people around a table. I think it was Obama and like the tech people, like Zuckerberg was there, and a bunch of other, you know, at some big meeting uh, of business people with Obama, right? Like captains of industry of, of the tech sector to to talk about stuff. And what happens in that meeting? One guy, what was his name? Chambers. I forget who he was. He was CEO of some company. Just was like bending Obama's ear about. Uh, a tax repa- repatriation holiday that allows uh, corporations to bring uh, to avoid tax payments on overseas profits if you bring them back to the U.S. and, all, and Zuckerberg and other people were annoyed that like uh, that this guy was just like complaining to Obama about this, but you know, saying we should be talking about what's important to the country. Uh, what is this guy just talking about stuff that's good for him? But when Jobs talked to me, said the same thing. So we need we need uh, to be more business friendly. It's, it's so easy to build a factory in China. It's hard to build it here, and we can't get enough workers even if we could build it here it's just kind of funny that like even jobs, Mr. Hippie, Mr. You know, uh, living in on the commune, picking the beans or whatever he was doing, total counterculture guy running a company changes you like being at that level of finance. He's making arguments for, you know, you need to be more business friendly deregulation. make it, make it more like here, like, like it is in China. Make that, make it more like that here, which is not a liberal hippie conservative type of thing. And it's just kind of, you know, it's, I don't know. I would have asked Jobs, are you, how do you resolve that conflict? You know, are you aware that these arguments that you're making would sound crazy to a 13-year-old you that you think you make should be more like China here and it's too hard to make a factory and we need more deregulation and we need more friendly to, to, to business? That's not a liberal position because he is uh, the CEO of a you know, multi-billion dollar company. And the other depressing thing was when you get all these big guys together and they get to talk to the president, they talk about exactly what you would think they would talk about like in a Batman movie. Like, you know, we need fewer taxes and fewer regulations because industry must it's just it's kind of comically comically evil. I bet they don't even know they're they're doing it. Obviously, you know, it's not evil if you're a conservative, but it's like they have the president's ear and they just want to talk about how uh, why how you can make it easier for my business. They're all incredibly rich. They all don't need any more money, but all they can think about is you, you as the government should make it easier for me as business to, to make more money in my business. uh read read jobs luckiest kid ever in case you were wondering if it's cool to be steve jobs's kid answer it is <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs>
1: i was blown away by like he's going to this big meeting what was he talking about like uh i think it was the antenna gate meeting or something so he flies back from hawaii he's like read why don't you come with me he's saying that uh that he would uh learn more in this uh meeting than he would in like a you know a year in business school he brings Reed Jobs. You just sit in on the meeting to talk about this gate thing with these, you know, with my PR people, with my ad guy, and all the people from Apple. Can you imagine that? That's the Apple nerds. Like, uh, maybe if you're a Jobs' kid, you know, it's not as exciting. It was like, I got to go with dad to work. But <laughs> but <laughs> if you're just an Apple nerd on the web, the idea of being able to tag along with Jobs just to hang out, like, it's just, it's crazy. Uh, and the other thing was when uh, he got to uh, bring his uh, freshman dorm mates to the iPad 2 launch. Yeah, come with me. I'll we'll go to my dad's thing. He's doing some product or whatever. And you get to, like, come in with with him and just sit in the front row and talk. It's just, yeah, that's that's a good deal. Uh, and and the, the other part was, like, when, it, when they were showing, they were trying to figure out designs for the the Apple Spaceship HQ, which uh, they designed for. It looks like a giant circle, like a Cheerio, basically, with a big hole, you know, the center with his, uh courtyard and stuff. And one of the earlier arrangements didn't look like that. It was a bunch of wavy lines and stuff. And Reed said that it looked like it reminded him of male genitalia because
0: <laughs> that's what, you know, a teenage kid, if you show
1: something, right, of course, gonna but say, everything
0: right? looks like that to a teenage boy.
1: I know. And, and, you know, and Steve Jobs, I think even said that, but you know what, they changed the design because once you see it, you can't unsee it. So here's, here's this is like teenage boys, beavis and butthead style sensibilities that we all men have in some, you know, degree buried down, changing the course of the Apple HQ, you know, cause he walked through the room and said that I found that charming. Jobs and the cloud. Uh, there's a couple parts where they talk about how uh, Jobs would love to, like almost every day, like take a walk through Johnny Ives' design studio. Because he would just, so there's a quote from uh, our, from the book, he can get a, a sense in a sweep of the whole company, the iPhone, the iPad, the Mac, the laptop, everything we're considering. That helps him see where the company is spending its energy and how things connect. This is Ives saying this. And he can ask, does this thing make sense? Because over here we're growing this other thing. So this this is how Jobs would sort of get a handle on like, you know, we got a lot of things in motion, a lot of stuff going on. Let me just look through the design studio and so I can look at the whole the whole thing, right? When I read that, I thought, this is why uh, Mobile Me screwed up. This is why I have dim hopes for iCloud, right? Because if the way you get a sense of how your company is doing and where it's heading is by wandering through a hardware design studio, that's great if your goal is to make awesome hardware. But increasingly, the awesome hardware has to be backed by services, and the fact that that's just like, oh yeah, and also make sure the services all work and everything. It can't be an also rant. That can't be a uh, an ancillary thing. There's no equivalent of him like walking through the data centers or walking through the room where they monitor the data centers or anything like that or seeing how, you know, like all that stuff that Google is great at and that Amazon has expertise in and that Apple, that Steve Jobs just seemed to want to work and not have to worry about it. He's walking through the design studio. That's, that I thought was highlighting the fact that if Jobs had lived, you know, to be 80 years old, eventually his focus on hardware would have become... And, and achilles heel where it was great for when devices were important and you still make awesome devices but you really have to pay attention to that other part and and to his credit like icloud is is a, a realization of that to say like we need to do it differently we need to see how other people are doing in the cloud is centric so on and so forth uh but it's not it's against his nature and he was still kind of like he wants it to work and he's annoyed when it doesn't but he's not you know he's still looking through the design studio to get an idea of where the company was headed future directions. A couple of people talked about, and all the articles talk about this, that he was saying he wanted to disrupt the textbook industry, which is a billion dollar industry. There's so, there's so many industries that have, that are screwed up, that have uh, entrenched interests who are just interested in enriching themselves. And like textbooks have like approvals at, at local government levels and local government is just, you know, the local government in Texas does not agree with the local government in New Jersey does not agree with the local government in California But there have to be these national textbook sellers want something that's accepted everywhere. And it's just it's a big mess. And, you know, this is this is an industry that he saw was stupid and corrupt and they could crush it if they could just do a a digital textbook type thing with the iPad and all that stuff. So it's interesting that he had, you know, that he was willing to admit that he had a site set on that. That's another example where success at disrupting the industry depends on some amount of cooperation or coercion or co-opting of the existing powers. I would like to see him do that too, but it's it's a tough thing to pull off. That's that's an example of where you're like, oh, well, Jobs is gone, but the combination of Tim Cook on the finance and operations side and Johnny Ive on the design side can approximate what he was doing. Well, who's the guy who does the persuading incumbent businesses of a new way of thinking type thing? Like, Tim Cook can get great contracts out of them and negotiate with them, but the whole sort of, do you want to sell sugar water line that that Jobs was so good at, to, to overturn the textbook industry, that's tough sell and it would, you need some charisma for that. And I'm not sure, you know, you can't take Tim Cook and Johnny Ive and tape them together and put them into a negotiating room and have them, and have them be as persuasive as Steve Jobs was. And even he may not have been able to do it because some people you just can't, just can't be convinced. And if anybody can't be convinced, it's probably the textbook industry. Uh, and, and the other future direction, talking about the, the, the iCloud thing. Uh, you know, Jobs was talking about the server farm and uh, and all this other stuff and what he's going to do with uh, iCloud. And so this, let me see if this is a direct quote. I think this is from Job, yeah. I'm going to take Mobile Me and make it free. And we're going to make syncing content simple. We're building a server farm in North Carolina. We can provide all the syncing you need and that way we can lock in the customer. It's a direct quote from Jobs. People are thinking like the only reason they're doing iCloud is because they want to lock in the customer and then the Apple fans will go, no, they're not trying to... He said... <laughs> We're making a server farm so we can get all your stuff syncing out. That way we can lock in the customer. He said it. <laughs> like, I don't think that's bad. I think that's how he thinks we can make it, you know. Like, he, they do that with all their products. But the, the idea that people, the Apple defenders will say that it's not about customer lock-in. That's, you know, that's what makes them successful. Are, are your iTunes username... The App Store was so successful because it piggybacked on your iTunes stuff that you already had. You already had the login, and the credit card, and you bought the stuff. And the iTunes tracks that you bought... With DRM originally, would only play on the iPod. Like, that kind of evil business stuff or whatever is part of Apple's success. And Jobs saw iCloud in a similar vein that if we can, you know, everybody does. Google does. Everybody who provides network services is like, come to our world. Get your Facebook login. Will you let you use your Facebook login in other places? Play your games on Facebook. Everyone wants, you know, lock-in. Customer, they want you to stay there. Google wants you to live in a Google world, to put all your stuff on Google, put your data there. It's not, you know, it's just, that's just the way things work. Uh, and Apple is always getting slammed for the lock-in type thing. Well, you know, here's a quote: that's that's just the way things work in the in the network cloud world. You want people to, you know, the utopian vision of everyone cooperating with everybody else and interoperable protocols with data that seamlessly transfers between vendors. That that's that's the you know that's like the reason OpenDoc didn't succeed. Nobody that's not in anybody's particular interest except for the customers. Uh, it's great that we have things like that, like the open web and everything, but it's a tough sell for individual large for-profit corporations to to do that with each other. Inevitably, they all want a bigger piece of the pie. Jobs and Gates. Uh, just br- briefly on this, he did talk to Jobs and talk to Gates about stuff. And they were just kind of like they were in that D8 conference. They were at turns sort of uh complimentary to each other. So, oh, yeah, I really appreciate what Steve did. Oh, yeah, I really appreciate what Bill did. And, you know, especially when Steve Jobs is dying, Gates is going to be, you know, it's not going to be yelling at him and stuff and everything, you know. Well, the integrated approach works well, you know, and, you know, I think that you, that you proved that the, the Windows approach works well. Like, I'll oh, be nice to each other. But then when you get them separated, and Isaac can talk to them separately, finally, for once, actually following up and talking to people. Uh, Gates clarified, said the integrated approach works well when Steve is at the helm, but it doesn't mean it will win many rounds in the future. Kind of saying, like, yeah, that approach works, only works well if you're Steve Jobs, which, you know, it's kind of uh, backsliding on his previous position. And the same thing with Jobs saying, like, oh, you said the Windows work well with that open model and everything. Uh, Or the fragmented model with Android and stuff. And the Jobs says, of course, this fragmented model worked, but it didn't make really great products. It produced crappy products. That was the problem. The big problem. (laughs) So he's going to say, oh, your model worked, made you a lot of money, but you made crap. (laughs) The Two of them, like, to their dying breath. Yeah, right. (laughs) Snipe it, like, you know. It's, a, it's just an honest difference of opinion. I think they really are collegial and understand each other and respect each other, but they just disagree about what the right way to do things is. And they just, just won't give in, you know? Oh, and uh, and the other thing with the 1997 Macworld thing with Gates up on the big screen, I, you know, people, when Gates came up on the big screen, this is when... uh it was were,
0: like a Big Brother reaction to that.
1: Yeah, Apple was announcing that Microsoft was investing in, in the company, and they were going to make Office and stuff like that. And just huge screen with a giant Bill Gates head on it. And you can't see that at an Apple event and not think about like the Big Brother in the nineteen eighty four ad and stuff like that. I always thought it was. I, I like that I, the idea. Like, look if you're gonna if you're gonna. Uh, make a deal with bill gates like a get it over with quickly like just you know rip off the band aid and b just put him up on the big screen just like spell it out like yeah that's right this guy it's like only nixon can go to china right uh but in retrospect job says that as uh, a quote from him, that was my worst and stupidest staging event ever it made me look small maybe he didn't like it for ego purposes but i thought it was like just get out of the way that's right this guy bill gates the big scary dude up there on the screen we're doing this deal it's gonna happen just you know, for Apple to succeed, Microsoft doesn't have to fail. Done and done. Now I got to
0: be—I got to be honest. When that thing came out and I saw that, I—I I mean, I—I I felt like Apple was doing what it had to do. But I—I I agree. I, it did make him seem small. It was—I thought it was like I—I I was watching it and I was like, oh man, like Apple is screwed. Like that's—that was the feeling that I had watching that thing. Don't you remember feeling that?
1: Yeah, no, that's what people felt. But like, I think, you know, I'm sure Jobs didn't like it. And he would have liked it to seem more equal. But like Jobs was small at that point. Do you know what I mean? Like, he was not in a position of power. The sizes were appropriate on that screen for the positions in the industry in 1997. In fact, maybe Bill Gates should have been bigger. You know? Uh, and <laughs> Jobs, Jobs always has been Tried to be like humble in those you know situations. He's always like, we we think it's really great. I hope you guys like it. You know, kind of like that's always his thing. And even in that one, you know, it made him seem small, made Gates seem important. But like that was the whole thing. Jobs is like, look, we we're in a hole, guys. We gotta we gotta come up out of this. It's gonna be a tough slog, and I'm just gonna start making moves. Clones, no deal with Microsoft, yes. Get those losses off the table, clear it out of the way. Like that was you know, I think that was part of the process. Uh, And even as much as it may have uh, annoyed Jobs and hurt him. I, I don't think it hurt his plan for the company. If anything, it helped tamp down expectations. you know, like, and I like me, me and Microsoft were equal partners. We're going to be great now because it took so many years for them to get out of that hole. It was long, hard work. Uh, and that was kind of the, you know, uh, what is it? The darkest right before the sunrise type of, uh, situation. Uh, but, but yeah, it's interesting that <laughs> he, he didn't like that. Uh, you know, again, the competitive thing, I don't want to look small. Why, like so
0: here's a question. Why put them up on a big screen period?
1: Yeah, well, that's this is also Jobs learning the lessons of staging where, you know, previously, like the whole Jobs keynote thing was not it hadn't arrived yet. He had just come back from next where he hadn't really been giving any big keynotes. Here he is, but it was a keynote, and he, you know, you know, he took away from that was like next time I'm making sure I know exactly what's going down. Where is the projector going to be? I'm going to I'm going to do that thing where, you know, I'm going to get three projectors and, and uh, precisely align them. So it's super bright. I want everything exactly how I want it. I want the stage of this color. I want this, you know, that that whole thing. He, at this point, he was like, oh, yeah, I'll just walk on stage and I'll just do my presentation and didn't realize probably that like, boy, how's this going to look right? He right. never made that mistake again. This is h- the process of him learning. No, I got to, you know, these keynote things are important. I got to get a handle on them. Uh, here's what I want. Listen. And, uh, you know, he's, soon, soon enough, he's got things rising out of the stage with black cloths and making Schiller jump off a thing onto a mat like in Conan. You know, anyone get that reference? No. Uh, <laughs> you should have said the Velcro wall from Letterman. It wasn't the Velcro world, but this was just a big vertical drop. Yeah. He didn't stick to anything. That's true.
0: Yeah. Uh, jobs I pers- bet he never does.
1: Yeah. Jobs is personality. This, this is one uh, one of the rare instances. Uh, he was talking to Annie Hertzfeld, which is like his go-to guy for a lot of stuff here, and I wish he had talked to many more people. Uh, but he says, uh, Hertzfeld once told me, the one question i truly love, Steve, to answer is, Why are you sometimes so mean? This is Hertzfeld saying this. Even his family members wondered whether he simply lacked the filter that restrains people from bending their words, wording thoughts, or willfully bypassed it. Jobs claimed it was the former, uh, that he lacked the filter, not that he was bypassing the filter, basically. Jobs said, this is who I am, and you can't expect me to be someone I'm not. When I read that quote, uh, again, when I read that quote, I I thought of the scorpion and the frog as a parable story. Do you know that story? Wonderful story. I don't know the details though. I'll give you the summary. Is like a, there's a the frog that wants to get across the river with the scorpion. And the frog is like, hey, oh, come Oh,
0: you're, you're butchering it.
1: I am. You want to tell it the right way?
0: I don't know if I can tell it the right way, but I can do better than that.
1: Okay, I'm sure you can. Go for it.
0: So there is a frog and a scorpion at the bank of a river. And the scorpion says to the frog, I can't swim. Can you please carry me across the river? And the frog says, I, I can't carry you across the river. You'll sting me. And we'll, we'll both drown. And uh, the scorpion says, come on, man, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. We'd both drown, like you said. I'm, just take me across the thing. Frog says, all right, get on my back. So the scorpion gets on the frog's back, and they're going across the river, and they're going, and they're going, and the scorpion stings the frog. And they both start to drown. And the frog's going under. He says to the scorpion, well, what did you do that for? And the scorpion says, eh, I'm a scorpion. It's in my nature. And they both drown
1: yeah basically and now so that's that's so meaty that like when someone says something like that it's so scorpion and froggish that i would have just i was like you got to dig into that man don't let him say that put the quote in the book and then move on to the next topic talk about it with him talk see what other people think you know you know that andy wanted to know the answer to this question you got the answer did you go back to andy and say oh well, job says actually you know it's not that i'm willfully bypassing my filters as i can't filter it like it's just in my nature i'm the scorpion right what does Andy Hertzfeld think of that? Which theory does he prefer? What do his other friends think? What does Steve Jobs think about it? Those? Uh, anyway, I'm trying to get into the author investigative, you know, examination of his personality thing. Uh, but on this particular topic of the, of the scorpion and the frog, I I have to think, it kind of gets into very quickly, if if I think about it for more than two seconds, very quickly into arguments about free will and other stuff that are not appropriate for this podcast and just, you know, like... Can he control what he does do we do any of us have free will what is the definition of free will in this context? but I think in the backing off from that because that's a big black hole that we don't want to get into in in the more commonly understood concepts of uh filtering and self control that answer that you know oh, it's just in my nature sounds to me like something someone says to make themselves feel better right because it's not as if you know there there's a lot mentally wrong with jobs right. Uh, but you can control your, you can limit your behavior to some degree. You can learn to limit it if it's important to you. And it just, for a variety of reasons that I don't think the book went into that much, my, my impression is that, so Jobs had all these hang-ups with his, you know, being adopted and stuff like that. His adoptive parents, according to this book, at least always seemed to give in to his whims. And that sort of raised the person who thought that he should be deferred to that he's that, He was very sensitive and was upset a lot of the time, but his parents, as parents tend to do, you know, you want your kid to be happy, were trying to do whatever they could to make sure he was happy. And it didn't always work, but the lesson he took from it was that my feelings are more important than your feelings. When, you know, when I'm upset, it's worse than you being upset. And since he was so sensitive and so able to hurt other people, when he did so, he's like that just seemed to be, you know, maybe it just is in his nature, but it, it seems to have some factor, you know, in his upbringing. And I have to think as you get older and as you learn, this is something you could have changed. Were you not the CEO of Apple? Were you not the CEO of Pixar and a millionaire? Say he was working a nine to five job for, you know, minimum wage, right? His personality would be different because you just can't get away with that. Like it's just the environment that enables that doesn't exist. The environment that enables that seemed to exist in his childhood and certainly exists once he was a millionaire. Uh, and to make the excuse like "oh, it's just the way I am, I can't help it," uh, that's sort of an abdication of responsibility that it, that that defines his character. That I would have, you know, I would have liked to seen that explored more and see what he thought of that because he's a smart guy. What if I what if I was at Steve Jobs' face? What would he say to me? He would he would you know he would probably argue with me about it and say and it's not the case. I would like to see that exchange. Uh, and and S- Isaacson came down the same way. Isaacson said this is a quote from the book, but I think he actually could have controlled himself if he wanted to. When he hurt people, it was not because he was lacking emotional awareness. Quite the contrary, he would size people up, understand their inner thoughts, and know just how to relate to them, control them, or hurt them at will. So Isaacson offers his opinion on it here, but doesn't. You know, it, it, Hertzfeld, Hertzfeld had the question. He went to Jobs and posed the question, got the answer, and then offered his opinion. He didn't take the answer back to Hertzfeld. He didn't ask other people. He didn't do. You know, didn't do due diligence on it. Uh, and that's something I, I don't. Honestly, I'm not too interested in hearing. You know. <laughs> Uh, Isaacson's opinion on it, as people probably are interested in hearing my opinion on it. I would have liked to know what everyone who actually knew Steve Jobs thought about that answer, what Steve Jobs himself thought about the obvious rebuttals to the answer. If Isaacson thought this, that he could have controlled himself, did he say that to Jobs? When he said that to Jobs, what did Jobs say? Blah, blah, blah. I'm going in circles again. Uh, Jobs is his kids. This is a, I thought it was kind of a heartbreaking section where he's talking about how much his kids wanted to spend time with him, and especially the part where the daughter asked to talk to Isaacson about stuff. Uh, and how she said, you know, uh, sometimes I wish I had more of his attention, meaning Jobs' is Right, right. But, uh, but I know the work he's doing is very important. And I think it's really cool, so I'm fine. I really don't need more attention. Translation, I need more attention. That's the translation. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, it's tough. Situ- you know, I don't, it's hard to be a parent in any situation. Can Being Steve Jobs and being a parent and, you know, running, even people who just run like a copy shop. Like, it's just work-life balance is not, I don't. I don't say, you know, Steve Jobs was a bad father or, you know, he, he was selfish. You should have paid more attention to it. because we're, we're all guilty of all these things to varying degrees. Uh, I don't come away with it demonizing him. Uh, you do feel bad, though. that said, like, in every situation where there's someone who does amazing things, there's probably some aspect of their life that's getting sacrificed for them to accomplish these amazing things. And it's sad when the part that he sacrifices is family life or kids. Uh, even his wife complained about it, saying, after two years of him being Jobs being ill, he finally gets a little better and the kids, they mean the kids, expected he would focus a bit on them, but he didn't. He just, you know, went right back to work. So even even the mother is kind of disappointed, like maybe this, this illness would like get him to focus on it. Steve Jobs was just, they didn't ask about this too much in the book either, but I get the sense from all the things that he's done that, especially with the philanthropy angle, they did talk about it a little bit. The reason Steve Jobs, I think Steve Jobs didn't give so much money to or didn't didn't seem to like be public about his giving to philanthropy and cancel the Apple program to give money to charity and stuff like that is that Jobs really, truly believed that the best use of his time and money and resources was to put it all into Apple to make better things to make the world better. And that was that that was more bang for the buck. And if you I think in his lizard brain, brain, if you said what will have a more, you know, what's a better use of your time hanging out with your kids or working at Apple? if you pose that question to him, which Isaacson, I don't think he did. Right. The right answer is, oh, well, my kids are the most important thing to me and family. Like Jobs gives that answer on the stage all the time. Like he would, you know, our families are the most important and blah, blah, blah. But deep down, I bet if you just, you know, sodium pentothal and him or whatever, he would say, <laughs> uh, a bit, you know, working at Apple has more bang for the buck. I'm going to make millions of people's lives better. I'm going to change millions of lives. When I talk to my kids, I just change one life. And I think that sort of inescapable, Math logic was just lurking under there. Despite the lip service, despite everything else, the reality of what he actually did—you know—what you say and what and what you do are two very different things. And what he did kind of shows that he thought spending time with his kids, particularly the girls, which is really painful. Like he seemed to invest a lot in read, according to this book, and we have no other accounts of this. So this is all we have to go on. Uh, but the girls, less so, and even less so, the girls whose personalities were not like him. Like he was more into Eve, who was feisty and more like him. But Aaron, who was kind of you know shy and everything. As a parent, that it, it hurts to read that because, you know, logically you can understand all that stuff about making the world better and it's, it's you know, you know, he's, it's more important for him to do the stuff with Apple. Would you rather have a really happy set of Steve Jobs children and no iPhone, iPad, iPod and all that stuff and just like a complete Windows world and no Mac and like, no one wants to make that choice there, but it's at the same time, like. I, I guess what I come away with is I think he he could have and should have struck a better balance, and maybe that's just because I'm a parent. And if you're just like cold and calculated you could say, "Forget the kids, I want my iPhone." You know. But- well,
0: I, there, there you know, I'll tell you, I've actually been thinking about this specific topic for a while, and uh, you know, especially over the last week. And Steve Jobs is one of, I would think, a small handful of people, very, very small number of people in the world. Who can actually say? And this may sound callous or whatever, but they can actually say that the work that they're doing is more, maybe, more important than, like, being at home with their kids. Like, because so many, if if you're looking at this from the, let me qualify this by saying, if you're looking at it from the statistical, logical, computer standpoint, like if you fed the data to a computer uh, and asked it which is more important, computer should Steve Jobs be at home with his family or should he be at work inventing an iPhone which will bring you know look at look at the way that uh, this is going this is going to start to really reach here but look at the way that the iPad has benefited people who cannot otherwise communicate whether they're kids who have autism or whatever the way that the, and I've seen that firsthand the way that that device is helping people who for years couldn't communicate with their children, who have adult children that they never knew could they even think, and now they know and they're talking to them. Like Steve Jobs had a huge hand in making that happen, and that's happening not in like five or six places, but in hundreds, maybe thousands of homes around the world. Like That's just one example. So would you then say, computer, that it's better for Steve Jobs to be at work, working on this stuff? You you would say Yes. Logically, yes. But I'm also of the opinion that like the most important work that you do is raising your family, is raising your kids. So it's it's kind of weird. And it's I don't know if there really is an answer there.
1: Well, yeah, the, the the parent idea in there is that someone else can always do the stuff you're doing at Apple, maybe not as well, so on and so forth, but you're not as replaceable as a father. Oh, I'll be at Apple, someone else can be dad to my kids. Right, I guess that's technically true if you want them to be adopted. But see how that—how did you like that, Steve? Being adopted, then you know you had great parents seemingly who just did everything for you, and you were still broken up about it and had problems with it. You know, it's not—it's the one thing that only you can do, really, because the kids, right? You know, are, are attached to you. I, I, it just seems to me like the balance could have been better. And getting back to like the whole, you know, iPads helping autistic people and stuff like that—that's that's the easy example. But I would say even like the stuff that doesn't seem like a big deal. Like you know, just people connected together more. Oh, I can do a Facetime with my kids. People being successful with technology, you know, right? Just the mi- like the, the millions liner. of
0: the millions of people who whose lives have been in in, in an almost insignificant way improved. Because yeah. the camera's better now and it's faster, and they got that picture that they showed to the grandparents. Right. It's, et cetera.
1: A, it's a million little things. It's like, oh well, if, if Apple didn't make an iPhone, someone else would have made a great phone and it would have been fine. You know, we we all think that the Apple ones are a little bit better. It's it's you know the, the huge magnitude of things like the, the benefits the, the disabled and uh, this just you know opening up new avenues of communication with people who are previously isolated. Those are like relatively small number, like you know thousands or millions or whatever. Uh, and then there are the tiny, tiny, infinitesimal little things. I mean, oh, it's just a little bit better than the other phones would have been. Just a little, but they're just multiplied over 300 million iPhones, right? It, it's you know, it's just different things. One of them is about volume, and one of them is about uh, the, the quality of the individual instances. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, if and I think Jobs understood this because he was kind of saying, "I want my kids to know me." That's a you know, that's a recognition that like I haven't spent as much time with my kids as the better angels of my nature think that I should have. When he gets up on the stage and says, because really our families are the most important things. He's saying that and he's got to be guilty inside to say, I'm going to say this to, because I know I haven't been living up to this ideal. This is my ideal and I'm I'm sad that I'm not living up to it, you know? Someone in the chat room has a complaint about the thing. Aaron Pressman says, this whole balancing of how significant work is versus helping your kids just making me sick. Yuck, wrong way to think about it. I'm not sure what his uh if he what's the well, why I why think do you s- think it's a difficult th- issue
0: well it's it's an issue that every single parent faces, and if you haven't thought about it um i mean it it's it's the kind of thing that at at the start of the day when you have to go do whatever it is you do to put food on a table there you think about it as a parent, I think you think about it every single day you say man. I wish I could do this and this and this, but I, I do have to work. And there is a trade-off. Well, you know what? Maybe I don't have to work. Maybe we could buy it, take all of our money right now and, and we could uh, buy a little trailer on some land in the middle of nowhere in, you know, in South Carolina somewhere where land is still cheap. And, you know, as long as we have enough for like, we could farm, we could have our own tomatoes, you know, we could, we could live. And, and you know what, living that way would cost $5,000 a year. And then I can spend all the time in the world with my kids. I mean, that's the argument. That's the flip side of it. Maybe that's why he's feeling he's uh, saying yuck.
1: Yeah. So Aaron has clarified. So he said Jobs was a bad dad well beyond the fact that he worked a lot, which I think is also true. We're all, you know, failing as parents in various reasons. Of course. Personality traits that made Jobs unique. You know, he's cruel to his children. He was, you know, just even if he wasn't working when he was with his children, he wasn't so great with them all the time. It's just it's not an easy thing to do. And the emotional answer is obviously like, well, you should spend all your time with the kids. And I think you just gave a great example. Like, also, what's the logical stream of that? We go, live, we go live in that place for five grand a year. Should everybody do that? You know, give away all your possessions. Uh, that maybe that's what you should do. It's what Jesus said we should do. So let's do it. it this Everything is a balance. This, it's not black and white. It's, I think Jobs himself clearly felt he didn't strike the balance that he wanted to. His ideals were different than his actions. Um, and I bet I bet he has similar feelings about the whole scorpion and frog stuff about how how is he cruel to people he kind of likes the result of that but you know it it must have been harder for him to make relationships or to have close relationships because there's not a lot of people who can sort of tolerate that kind of abuse and it's not you know you know what i mean like he's got that inner circle of people who understood you know it's, it's the frog who keeps letting you know i gotta find a frog who will let me keep stinging him and still be my friend you know I think that's it. I've got the, the Isaacson interview in New York Times is in the show notes. You can read it to to uh, learn more about him. But I think I've already covered everything that I wanted to cover from that. Hmm. I could give some sort of summary of what I thought of Steve Jobs, so we could talk about him for a while. But we're over here. So I hope people are satisfied, even though I didn't spend this entire show. I, I can tell about you the they
0: books. will. They will not be. That's all right. They will not be. Not even close. Was that a uh, definition of drama? Right. Someone
1: goes into a scene and they want something and they don't get it. That's drama. That's what you think drama is. That was that uh, letter from a playwright whose name I can't pronounce.
0: Uh-huh. Is it
1: Mamé or Mehmet? Uh, he was trying to. He wrote to a bunch of people who were writing a television shows to, to explain to explain to them what drama is and why they're blowing it. It's a great mm-hmm. letter. Okay. Can't believe you don't know that one. I should uh, put that in the show notes I too. I don't know that trial. one. I'll look it up. I don't know that one. All right. Someone's saying Mehmet. You don't know how to pronounce it. You don't even know. Do you know who this is? Mehmet. That's not what I say. But someone in the chat room says Mehmet. Someone says they want to hear me talk about free will. No, that's not the show. I <laughs> would love to hear you talk about free will. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Well, I sure would. Oh god. Yeah. No. But someday will somebody will do a show about your cult diets and and Buddhism and free will, and
0: it'll just be. Can we oh. get a, a little preview? No. <laughs> No. You don't just drop I'm a not, hint. No,
1: no, it's, it's a religion and politics. Let's avoid, avoid. Because hmm. it because it alienates too many people who would otherwise enjoy listening to talk about tech topics. People talk about like, oh, you shouldn't be afraid to talk about your political opinions. Like, if they're your opinions, you should you know be proud of them and have them. And in some some respects, I, I agree with that. But if it's a show about mm-hmm. Apple and related businesses and technologies. That's not the correct forum to talk about that, and all you're going to do is offend and annoy people who didn't come to your show to hear about religion and politics. Mm. But we could do an after dark about it sometime, because all bets are off of there.
0: Oh, yeah, they are.
1: And we can curse, which would be appropriate when we talk about your diets.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, uh, we want to mention that uh, next week we will be... Uh, We will be here, even though it is the week of Thanksgiving here in the United States. We will be here. We will be recording on a regularly scheduled time. And I'm willing to bet that John Syracuse will have eaten turkey.
1: Uh, Hopefully, yes, turkey will have been successfully
0: consumed. Even that very day, right before we record. Leftovers,
1: sandwiches, yeah.
0: So uh, if, if you want, you can tune in. You know, I think a lot of people will be home that day. So maybe maybe we can have people tune in live. And how do they do that? They go to 5x5.tv slash live. And they can tune in live. And we start recording at uh, noon Eastern time. We can tune in, listen to us chat, and you can eat, eat your leftovers, eat your moist maker, whatever it is that you like. And uh, that's it. You can follow John Syracusa on Twitter. Syracusa. Figure it out. And I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And uh, at 5 x tv, we've got all the previous 41 episodes of this. Is it 41 or 42? Uh, 41. 42 e- previous. This is number 42. This is 43. This is How come I got it marked as 42? I don't know. 42. I thought you would have made note of that one. Yeah, that was a big Douglas one. Douglas
1: Adams, you know. You just did a show on Douglas Adams.
0: Yeah, that's right. And uh, somebody pointed out uh, that, that what a coincidence that the best episode of hypercritical episode 42 was also the answer to life and everything and blah 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 so this is number 43 i hope i said it right in the beginning but who cares so that'll be episode 44
1: yeah and and everyone who uh seemed to love episode 42 funnel that enthusiasm for the show while you're still on that high and and don't change your mind and start hitting it into a positive review on itunes genius yeah because all, for all that positive feedback, you think, boy, now this is going to be a big bump in the number of people rating and writing reviews. Nope, no bump.
0: All right, then. Well, that's it, John. Have a good week. Happy Thanksgiving. You too.